Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to a very special edition of the Coffee Clatch. I'm Marianne Russo. I'd like to thank our sponsor of today's show, Mayor Johnson. With every child, there is a solution. Explore a variety of educational solutions at mayorjohnson.com. And you can save 20% by using their promo code SOLUTION20 at checkout. Mayor Johnson is your super source for a special education resources board maker. So go over there, mayorjohnson.com. Their website is just fantastic. Today, as I said, is really a very special show. It's actually one of our events. And um, we have Angie Eden, who is hosting, and Dr. Sherry Florence. This show is The Maverick Mind. One of my all-time favorite interviews was with Angie. Um, She did the premiere of Inspire. It was the story of a mother looking for answers for her daughter's struggles, and she really uncovered an amazing, truly amazing and incredible way of thinking, a way of relating to the world and processing information that no one would have imagined. So today, Angie is back hosting the show with an amazing guest, Dr. Sherry Florence. Dr. Florence, despite having others label her son deaf, autistic, mentally disabled, uh, she just refused to give up. And with her expertise in brain science and speech pathology, today Whitney is symptom-free, a college graduate, and a professional engineer. So it is an honor to bring on Uh, Dr. Florence and Angie Eden. We will be hearing um, about how the work that she does in brain engineering is helping children on the autism spectrum, ADHD, with PDD, learning disorders, communication disorders, and um, I think you are just going to be blown away by this interview. It is a pleasure to welcome Angie Eden and Dr. Sherry Florence. How are you, ladies? Thank you very much, and we're great. Great. Someone has um, the sound on their computer. If you can just lower that, it's, it's putting an echo into it. Um, um, Angie, thank you for hosting the show for me because uh, I really, I, I'm so taken by this um, topic and I really know so little. So like the listeners, I'm really interested in hearing it. So please, um, start off your show. Wonderful. Well, I'm the one that should thank you for the opportunity. Um, I've been wanting to introduce Dr. Florence to a, a greater audience for um, as long as I've worked with her. Um, It's been a few years. Um, And not only because her personal story is just so remarkable, which you'll hear about, but what she learned from that experience, um, she uh, really made her life's work. She used her unique combination of um, credentials in brain science, speech and hearing science, and psychology. And um, from those efforts, really developed a model um, to help so many people. And what I'm hoping to bring to our listeners with this interview is a new way of thinking about a lot of the symptoms seen in children with autism, Asperger's, OCD, and other communication and behavior disorders. Once you're introduced to this new paradigm that Dr. Florence developed, your view of your child and other highly visual thinkers around you can change forever. For me, I gained a new appreciation of not only my own daughter, but of everyone around me. Um, I learned to think of people's thinking styles when I met them, and it really does affect your interactions with people. In particular, I had a new appreciation of the gifts of highly visual thinkers and for many people that I met on the spectrum. So let's start with talking about your personal story, Dr. Florence, involving your son, Whitney. Um, You chronicled the story in your book, The Maverick Mind, which is a fabulous read. 
Um, Whitney was your third child. Your first two children were neurotypical, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, so yes. bring our listeners back to the very beginning and tell us what Whitney was like um, at a very young age and then how you were able to, uh, to begin making progress with the difficult diagnoses that you received. Okay. Well, when Whitney was young, when he was a baby, he did not relate to me as his mother. He didn't know I was his mother or Vanessa, his sister, or William, his brother, were his siblings. He didn't know day or night. He wasn't hungry, had very limited appetite. He didn't sleep easily. He had trouble with balance. He had trouble holding a cup. He'd either hold it too tightly or not tightly enough and drop it. No proprioceptive feedback. And we could scream in his ear. He wouldn't hear anything. And at other times, he was hearing way too much banging his head. He didn't talk till he was seven. And he flunked out of special education for an entire school district as severely retarded and multiply handicapped. Uh, thinking that he was really unreachable. And we hired some of the best experts uh, on childhood psychiatric illness and uh, speech and language impairments. Since I was an NIH fellow, I knew experts worldwide, and they came and saw Whitney and said this brain damage was too severe and he was hopeless. By the time he was 14, he was taking college classes at The Ohio State University. He lettered in football and wrestling. He won speech contests. He directed plays and tap danced in 42nd Street. And now he's a chemical engineer. He he was not an amazing story. Yes. And he was not mentally retarded, Angie. He was a maverick. So Tell our listeners how in the world you were able to reach him. What what was the key to figuring this out? I, I was a brain scientist, and I was trained in how to measure attention, memory, and processing on both the visual and the verbal pathway. So since Whitney was up all night destroying the household and getting into, into danger, I was extremely tired, and... So we drove down from Columbus, Ohio, to Cincinnati because I'd seen an ad in the paper that said, uh, we have a special parent weekend where you can have a suite and it's totally child-proofed and you can just take a bubble bath and, and dream your troubles away. So off we went. We got there late, walked through the lobby, went to the suite and crashed. At about two in the morning, the police were knocking on my door, and they had a little boy, two and a half, naked, in holding the policeman's hand. And they said, is this your little boy? And I said, uh, yes. They said, well, you should keep better track of him. Well, what he'd done was he'd peeled all the veneer off the television uh, entertainment center and unscrewed uh, the locks on the door got on the elevator, went, found his way to the kitchen of the Hyatt and got something to eat and fell asleep on the floor. And so 
when we drove home, I was thinking to myself, what am I going to do? And as I thought about it, I thought, you know, that took a lot of intelligence to figure all that out. That's right, because the door, the door, it was a child lock door, correct? Right. Mm-hmm. Child-proof lock. Mm-hmm. Right. But he figured out how to dismantle the door and how to get out and how to get on the elevator, how to push the button. He was a baby. So I thought, you know, this is pretty smart. So then I started really watching and organizing visual activities for him. And his, that's that's really all he had because he wasn't hearing, he wasn't speaking. As his visual thinking progressed, then he was thinking in a productive way. And from visual thinking, I could teach reading. And then from reading, I could teach listening and then speaking and then writing. And so how did you teach reading from visual activities? Well, first that was the link for... Well, you remember Helen Keller, Angie, where she Helen Keller, where she was Annie was trying to teach her that there a word is a word, and she was taking Helen everywhere and trying to fingerspell words into her hand. Remember that, Angie? I do. And one day, Helen put her hand under the water, and the and her teacher Annie Sullivan was pumping the water, and she typed water and uh, into her hand. And Helen understood, and she ran all over trying to figure out the names of everything. So I thought, if there's some way I could get Whitney to do that, to understand a word is a word. So I took all the familiar logos that he would see, the the label on the orange juice bottle, the label on the milk carton, the label on the Disney videos, the label of everything, and thought of it as a as a picture instead of a word, a logo. And started teaching him through the logos and then building sentences. And pretty soon he was reading which video he wanted to watch. He was reading all kinds of things from not phonics, but what the letters looked like. And then he had the same experience of he understood there was a word just like Helen Keller. It's just amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And so your journey continued. Um, he said his first words, which I think were, wasn't it, hello, Dr. Florence? Yes. <laughs> when he was seven years old. Mm-hmm. And just continued. Like you said, he was taking college classes when he was in high school and, and doing all of those things of a, of a typical high school boy. Right. So I'm sure that was quite a long journey, and you just applied everything you knew and um, learned so much from this. Um, so what you're saying is that you discovered that he, Whitney, at that, when, at that young age, was using a completely visual way of thinking, completely mm-hmm. visual, no verbal. And you were able to bridge that gap from visual to verbal. So, and through that, you developed therapies um, to help visual thinkers develop their verbal skills. Mm-hmm. And you um, profile that type of mind, that highly visual mind, um, profiled it, and you coined the term maverick mind. I explained in the previous interview where you got the term maverick, 
and that's because on that bell curve, most people use visual and verbal thinking, depending on the task. But there are the outlayers, the mavericks on each side. And the maverick minds you're talking about are the ones that are on the right side of the bell curve using, um, I always think of it on the right, could be on the left, but uh, the ones that use purely visual thinking skills. Mm -hmm. So I want to take um, our audience through a little exercise. I know okay. that you'd be able to do this for us. Could you um, do a little experiment to have each one of our listeners experience for themselves what you mean by visual thinking versus verbal thinking, and then sure. how you switch between the two? Okay. Let's have everybody look around the room that you're in. Look to the right. Look to the left, look to the ceiling, look to the floor, look all around. Now close your eyes. Can you do a virtual tour in your mind? Can you see your room, the furniture, what's on the wall, what's on the floor? Now we've spent about, what would you say, Angie, about three or four seconds doing that? Mm-hmm. So now take a piece of paper and write down what your room looks like. We'll give you three or four seconds to do that. Yeah, that's going to be pretty hard. Yeah, so I, maybe some of our listeners have already given up on this idea, but it shows us that the visual thinking system is so powerful, it can work 30,000 times faster than the verbal because if you did write anything down, it's probably just a word or two or three. It doesn't begin to describe the room. So the time of processing for something that you can see and store in memory versus something you can listen to or read or write is very different. And because this visual system is so evolved and so strong, so powerful, so multi-capable, it can shut down the verbal, and then we can see symptoms that look like all these other problems, like autism or ADD. Or, but really what's happening is the visual system is overpowering the verbal system and throwing off the ability to pay attention and remember and process language. Absolutely, and I'd like to just throw in a couple of little examples of how you might see this. Okay. Um, one one thing is um, if you in your mind think visually, and, and that can be just pictures like a slideshow or actual movies. In fact, I know some Mavericks can close their eyes and re-watch a movie, right? Right. I know you told that story once of a college professor that said Saturday nights he would make some popcorn, get in his lazy boy chair, go right. back, relax, close his eyes, and watch a movie. And watch Gone with the Wind, <laughs> no less. Yeah. I think that is so hard for people to believe that. That sounds really like an unreal power. Mm -hmm. And he was a robotics professor at Stanford. That's oh, amazing. Well, so going back to some examples, if you're thinking in movies and you have this extremely creative mind, you've, you've made a whole movie in your mind, but then you have to sit down and write the movie. Um, 
or if you're having to do a report on a movie you watched in school. Well, how how do you put those words down to that movie? It's very similar to the exercise you just walked us through. So I know that's one example you can see problems with writing. Another um, problem is that, at least I know from my family, when they're listening to things or even reading, sometimes um, language that's very complex, when there's a lot of adjectives and things, mm-hmm. um, they'll say that they just see a picture for every one of those words and they have to somehow put them together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their picture for green might be a tree, but that doesn't really match with what the author's trying to say. So mm-hmm. that can cause some problems with reading. Um, and then, of course, listening is the same the same concept. If you're seeing If you're seeing what people are telling you, you may have a real hard time with that. Right, absolutely right. And that leads us to thinking about associative versus sequential thinking. Because if you see a tree when you're reading the, you know, the beautiful woman at the ball was wearing a green dress, an emerald green dress, but you see an emerald green tree leaf because you were just painting trees an hour before, you've made an association that's throwing you off from what the story's about. And sometimes people call that daydreaming. But if you remember Apollo 13, the movie, the engineers down at the space center were trying to figure out how to get the spaceship back, and they had to quickly make associations with what was on board to create the broken parts to save the astronauts' lives. That's a good example of associational thinking. So we wouldn't say that they were daydreaming. (laughs) Right. And I also love how you famously say that if you told a visual thinker to stop daydreaming, it's like telling them to stop thinking. Exactly. I love that. So that is really such a central point of your work is what you said, the associator. If you think of um, the two thinking pathways that you talk about, the visual thinking pathway and then the verbal thinking pathway, the real engine of visual thinking is that associative mind. And um, the engine of the verbal pathway is a sequencer. So could Mm -hmm. you compare and contrast those two powerhouses of thinking? Sure. The associator can see patterns where other people see chaos. One of the the best examples of a maverick mind is Albert Einstein. He had a lot of difficulty in school. He was put in a program for the mentally retarded at age four, I mean in grade four. He had trouble getting into high school because he passed the science exams, the math exams, flunked the language exams. Same thing happened in college. And he was thinking... Uh, Experts describe his brain as he could see patterns where everyone else was seeing chaos. He could make associations that were leapfrogging ahead of science and physics. Whereas the sequential brain that we use for schoolwork or listening in the classroom is very rigid, very unforgiving, one sound at a time. And if you miss a word or you misunderstand a couple of ideas, 
then the whole paragraph can be thrown off to a different meaning. So you could hear something like the Messiah, where you have lots of instruments, lots of singers, soloists. You hear it with your ears. You convert it over to the visual pathway to take to manage all those layers of the instruments and the singers. We can only say one sentence at a time, only pronounce one sound at a time, read one word at a time, hear one word at a time, write one word at a time. So it's very sequential, very orderly, very time-based, unforgiving. Do you think that... That's clear, Angie? I think it is, and um, I like that you hit on time. <laughs> That's also uh, usually is, is a big clue for me. If um, somebody loses track of time constantly, um, you know, they have these ideas floating around, they go from one idea to the next, that says an associative brain to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other thing I want to, um, I would love for you to talk about, uh, you sort of described it how the sequential brain is very orderly and logistic and really that is how children are taught in school they are taught in building blocks correct mm-hmm. they sure and are I, and i believe that's why so many of the visual thinkers um have trouble in school it's not a great fit for them because it doesn't really fit their style in fact i recently read a study where they said i can't remember the exact percentage but it was very high 75 to 80% of teachers are very verbal themselves. Exactly. That's why they go into a, a profession that's very linguistic. We're, we're talking all the time. I mean, 76% of the school day, the teachers talk. Students are listening. So we want to think about um, listening being a success at school. And if you have a problem with listening to form pictures to comprehend something, then your listening is going to be disrupted and disfluent, and that can throw school off. And it can look like to the teachers that you're unmotivated or lazy or not trying hard enough. And often if you go for special testing, visual and verbal are added together in average so you can come out looking normal. And as you said earlier, Angie, if we think about the bell curve and you're at the 90th percentile and the 10th percentile and you add them together and divide by two, you'll come out at the 50th percentile. So many mavericks look normal to to people giving the test because most people are at the 50th percentile. 50 people out of 100 are there. So it comes out looking normal when we've really got two outliers and I can tell you, you helped me see this. I, um, of course, did uh, the uh, neuropsych testing with my daughter, and the results looked just as you said, um, average to high average, let's say. But when I showed you um, those scores, you pointed out to me those scores, the, the subtest scores varied hugely. There was one subtest score where she scored 160, and mm-hmm. there was another that she scored 70. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, one had to do with visual, which was the mm-hmm. 160, and it was the auditory that was at the 70. 
Right. And doesn't that match the profile? Isn't that really how you define the maverick's mind? That's the objective measurement of the maverick mind. So a one, two people out of 100 on most uh, IQ conversion tables uh, would get 130. So your daughter Meredith scored way, 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 way above one out of 100. She was way off in the genius zone on the visual, and very uh, two people out of 100 would get a 70. So when you get to two people out of 100, you're really not on the bell curve anymore because the bell curve is about standard deviations from the mean. One standard deviation, two standard deviations, and then we have these outliers way out there aren't even on the bell curve, and that's how she tested. Twice exceptional, super genius with a language problem. So that's one way to tell if you're a maverick. There's some other ways, too. Why don't you talk us through those? Okay, well, first of all, visual people are rare to begin with. The National Institutes of Health says even today with all the technology and TV and iPads and computer games, still less than 20% of the the population is born with a pre-programmed highly visual brain. And we can tell that by looking at jobs in the family tree, which is the first question I always ask. Are there visual thinkers in the family? Any pilots or artists? Engineers, doctors, architects, computer people, mathematicians, any visual thinkers back in the family tree. Usually for the people that I'm working with, there are tons of visual thinkers through the family tree. And then we already know that's a small group. Then if we have testing like you, you had, We can look at the scores and see are the visual scores really high and the verbal or auditory processing scores low. And we have 50 specific characteristics of a maverick. And a lot of those are listed on my website at www.sherryflorence.com, C-H-E-R-I-F-L-O-R-A-N-C-E.com if you'd like to look at the symptoms. And then we look at the goals that people are looking to reach. Is your first goal to com- for your child to communicate better or to make friends better or to do better at school? Then we know that you're looking for improvements on the verbal pathway. So those are sort of the, the check marks. And if you think about it for a second... If somebody says, well, your child isn't paying attention very well, like it's written on your grade card, and then you think, but he can play on the computer for hours. He can shoot baskets for an hour. He can watch a video for an hour. He's having a detention problem listening to the teacher. Visuals high, verbals low. Does that help, Angie? I think it does. I think it does very much. In fact, maybe this would be a good time to ask you. um, I've heard you say in the past that mavericks can look like they have imitation autism. It -hmm. can look like something else. So, um, And I also know that you have a book out titled Autism, A New Hope, with a question Mm -hmm. mark, I believe. Right. 
So could you discuss what are the differences between a maverick mind and somebody on the spectrum, or is there really a difference at all? Well, there's a very big difference, a huge difference. First of all, autism is a psychiatric disease. It's considered, by definition, a chronic, lifelong psychiatric illness. And a maverick has a language disorder that's considered treatable by the United States government, the U.S. Office of Education, the International Classification of Disease, American Academy of Pediatrics. Language disorders should get better, and if approached properly in a highly visual person, should get better quickly. And so the best practice patterns are completely different because the definition of of the disorders are completely different. They have a every disease has an expected course, course of the disease. The course of a language disorder should improve. The course of autism is expected to be lifelong. The second thing is that we have high visuals. The IQ scores of all my Mavericks are above the one percentile. They're all super high. And recent research on autism has shown that autistic people as a population in 2013, as our diagnostics are getting clearer, tend to have visual thinking disorders visual thinking Mm. disorders. So that's some new research that's coming out, and we're saying the Mavericks don't have a disorder in the visual thinking system. They are geniuses. So that's another big differentiating factor, isn't it? Can I just address it's Marianne here? I told you I'd chime in if I needed to, and I really need to. Um, Okay. So I I have a question then. Um, Does it also differentiate with social skills? Do you you also find um, the maverick minds to have um, difficulty with social skills? Absolutely, because social skills depend on saying the right thing in the right way at the right time. That's having a communication partner where you talk the right amount and you say the right things and you empathize with the other person. And so that's the ultimate use of language, isn't it, Marianne? Yeah. It's, and, you know, what also and, I think could be confusing is you, you said that there was, um, that that um, you described autism as having a disorder of visual thinking. Can you just elaborate on that? Because I'm not sure that the listeners get it. I know that I, I'm not really clear on it. Well, the ophthalmologists have been studying autism, too. The physicians that study how the eyes connect to the brain and how the eyes process information into attention, memory, and thinking. And some recent research has come out that says in autistic people, there are impairments in that pathway. And for my people... I can test every single component of that pathway from your eye, through your brain, from attention, discrimination, zoom lens, scanning, into how the memory works, into how the knowledge is stored with IQ tests that are over 100 years old and revised and revised over the years. My clients are 160, 130, 190 IQ 
all the way from the eye into knowledge management. That's that's different, isn't it? So then, how would I'm just I'm going to ask one more question, Angie, and then I'm going to disappear. That's okay. Um, how would a parent um, be able to know? I mean, what are some um, defining factors that a parent could say? Well, um, you know, maybe this is a maverick mind. Maybe this is a, a disorder of communication and language um, versus um, being on the spectrum. You know, are there any differences that that, that you could point out? Mhm. Well, the first thing you want to think about is sit down and write down three goals you would have for your child. Do they relate to social skills and communication and listening at school and following directions and finishing things on time? If they're related to Dr. Dennis Cantwell, who was a child psychiatrist who wrote the DSM on the diagnosis of autism, and I worked with him for five years, said the goals will be different for an autistic child and a maverick. And if the goals are all based on communication and language processing, then that's that's factor number one. Factor number two is, are there a lot of highly visual thinkers in highly visual jobs in the family? Factor number three would be, are you noticing that your child has great attention playing video games, but inconsistent with attention at school. Good at puzzles, but poor at friendships. Studies, but does poorly on a test. The, the information that was studied didn't make it all the way to knowledge and long-term memory. So we're looking at, is visual attention and memory much better than verbal attention and memory? If you Does your child, your six-year-old child, remember that when you drive into the parking lot at the doctor's office or the dentist's office that there might be some pain involved? Or when they drive to the swimming pool that there might be some fun involved, recognizing from turning into the parking lot that this is going to be a lot of fun because we're at the pool now or we're at the toy store and still not talking? Visual memory versus auditory, verbal memory. Does that help, Marianne? Yes, it does, actually, and I'm interested. I'm sorry to interrupt, Angie. I'm interested to hear how um, the techniques that you use for the Mavericks also help children on the spectrum, ADD, PDD. So um, thank you. Continue, Angie. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. I, I want to just interject and bring up one point that really hit home with me. Um, you taught me, first of all, we sort of switched gears and, and started talking about language disorders. And, and that is what really hit home for me, first of all, to really think of Mavericks as having a language processing disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you also pointed out to me, by the way, that on the IQ test, um, there is a um, caveat that if you have a language or communication disorder, I believe, I'm not sure how they word it, that those scores may not be accurate. I found that very interesting. Mm -hmm. I found that interesting. So um, here's the thing that I really want to say, is that you told me 98% of your parental guidance and, you know, the raising of your child is verbal. You tell your child. I told you over and over. How many times do I have to tell you? (laughs) Put that away. 
mm-hmm. 98% is verbal. And so I think that's kind of another clue as to, um, you know, a maverick versus something else is that um, if you find yourself saying the same thing over and over, yet your child is still doing this behavior, um, that could be one clue. And that also points towards the social problems because mm-hmm. um, they're not, if you're explaining to your child how to interact with somebody, they it may be kind of going over their head and they, they're not internalizing that. That's right. It's not getting to memory and being usable knowledge. That's very right. well put, Angie. That's that's excellent. Well, you're a good teacher. What can I say? Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Real quickly, we've talked about some of the um, sort of pitfalls of having a maverick mind, and that's uh, really the biggest one is functioning in school or what you you call school verbal land. Mm-hmm. Um, that's difficult. Listening uh, to your parents or you know anything really having to do with the language uh, mm-hmm. can be a can be a problem. Let's talk about some of the real positives. Um, oh, <laughs> you did mention some of the careers. You know, and at first when you told me doctors were highly visual, I I never ever thought of that. But then I started thinking about it more, and it, it does make sense. Maybe you could describe some of those careers and how those strengths um, are used. Right. I'd be glad to. I mean, I worked in a medical school for 20 years. I'm a verbal. So when I dream at night, there's no picture, just a radio. My dream is You're on the opposite end of the bell curve, right? Right. Absolutely. (laughs) So I am a verbal. When I dream at night, I hear the voices talking. And if I had a real vivid dream, I can still hear the voices talking through the day of the dream, of the people in the dream. And but there's I no think picture. that would surprise a lot of people. I think. <laughs> or it maybe it just surprises me because I'm more visual. <laughs> well, most people are a little bit visual and a little bit verbal, so they wouldn't have a dream like that. But I'm extreme. And so most mm. people probably have pictures in their dreams. But on the other hand, I had a master's degree at 21, worked my way through school, stopped for two years to... Uh, do my internship, and then went back and got two doctorates by 25, and then worked at the National Institutes of Health. So Wordland and Verbaland is my friend. Words in, <laughs> words out, I can do that quickly. But I, I trained to be an expert in language and the brain. I just want to interject there. That's another good point for Mavericks. They see words as their enemy. I know that my family says that a lot. Words mm-hmm. are not their friend. That's another good clue, right? Right. And words are very ambiguous. And visual people are very logical. So words, we don't always say what we mean and we ramble and we try to get to the point because we're thinking while we're talking. And that can be very upsetting for a maverick and then they can engage in fight or flight. Fight means we're going to argue or throw a temper tantrum. Even my adult mavericks that are doctors and engineers, they can get exasperated with too much talking or withdraw, go to the basement and work in your tool shop or make a little art studio with curtains around it and go into your little art studio and paint pictures. Remember that, Angie? Yes. (laughs) So the 
family tree, the the benefits of being a visual are our brightest and our boldest of the species are visual. They're rare, but they leave a legacy. People like Leonardo da Vinci and Thomas Edison and Michelangelo, Albert Einstein, Winston Churchill, highly visual people with a language disorder. And the way we correct that is not by teaching the language system, as you'd think. We teach the visual system. We teach the visual system to work under your control, and then we use the visual strengths to repair the verbal weakness. And this is really what you've... um brain engineering program. Right? Right. And um, for clients, you take them through all sorts of exercises. A lot of them are fun, but they all have a specific purpose to, number one, to develop that sequencer. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the ways you do that is when you're doing exercises, every time a child gets an answer right, you take a penny and ping it in a cup so it makes a noise. Mm-hmm. And they hear that. And mm-hmm. you do that every three times. They get answers right every three pennies. Then they get um, some sort of treat, maybe an M&M or a goldfish or something. And then once they're done with all of their exercises, you send them on a treasure hunt in the house. Right. And tell us how that is developing their verbal skills, because I, that's a skill that we can, even though somebody's not in your program, they can incorporate into their daily life. Mm-hmm. Well, the backbone of verbal thinking is sequential. Everything, like if you if you if everybody listening writes my name down on a piece of paper, it's Sherry C H E R I, and underneath that, if you write Chair C H A I R, underneath that Cat C A T, and then Kitten K I T T E N. If you circle the first letters of those four words, they're all C's and and a K, three C's and a K. But we need to convert that into what it sounds like to know what it means. So if you said cherry instead of sherry, it would mean two different things. So for verbal sequential thinking, every sound has to be exactly right, in the right order, with the right amount of time for us to know what we're what the meaning is. And teaching that sequencer to a maverick is so abstract and so ambiguous, it's so difficult that it would be extremely exasperating. So we disguise it as the treat. And the second point is there's an antagonism or fighting between the visual and the verbal when I meet most mavericks. And we want the fighting to stop immediately. There's antagonism in the brain. So if we're doing a visual activity like a hidden picture and every time you get the answer right, we ping a penny, we have the verbal pathway open. It seems like a reward, so the sequencer isn't aversive. We're looking for visual things, so we're working on the visual pathway and we're getting them to work in harmony instead of fighting. And that's our continuous sequencer. And when Angie said after three pennies you get a goldfish or a treat or a sticker, that's our fixed ratio. That's what we need for conversational speech and building friendships like Marianne was talking about. 
And the variable is the treasure hunt, looking for clues and getting a surprise at the end. That teaches the brain how to use the backbone of the sequencer for listening to lectures, taking notes in college, taking verbal tests. So we disguise it as the tree. Well, that sounds, it's it's, um, a pretty complex um, understanding. It took me a while to study that, to understand what you're talking about. But I think maybe what people in our audience can relate to is if, um, let's say, their morning routine, they have to do three things. And maybe they they put their clothes on, they get a Post-it note, put it on the wall, that's one. Then mm-hmm. they brush their teeth, they put it on it, that's two. They get, um, what else would they do? Maybe use the restroom, that's three. Three Post-its, and then they get to go downstairs and eat uh-huh. breakfast or something like that. Could you maybe, right. I mean, is that something that people could do to help that system or no? That's a very good example, Angie, a very good example. So you're going to, what you are trying to do is teach this logical sequential engine. You teach order like, you know, three times and then something, three times and then something. And in the end, you don't know, it'll be something variable. Right, and and you see, all language is built on a timeline, and many mavericks appear disorganized to teachers. They have trouble sequencing and organizing their work. And when I take art class, there's no timeline in art class. Maybe I paint the right side, maybe I paint the left side, maybe I paint the background, maybe I paint an arm, maybe I paint a candle. That's what I was doing this afternoon. I was painting... But it it was up to my creative juices to decide what I how I was using my time, and the time flew by. And I'm a verbal. If I sat in a three-hour lecture, I would notice that it had been three hours, even for me, the verbal. But in painting class, three hours can go by, and it seems like one minute. There's no timeline in 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 visual land. That's why surgeons can operate for 14 hours and. They're going to keep operating until the patient is finished. There's no timeline. It's We start and we stay there until we get finished. We don't say it's 5 o'clock and we have to go home now. No. Very interesting. Um, you know, talking about the different pathways, the verbal pathway and the visual pathway, and the sequencer versus the associator. Let's talk about the the end picture of each pathway. Um, the visual thinkers are very good with understanding the big picture. Can you talk mm-hmm. about that? Sure. Visual thinking is so fast. Let's just take the grown-ups, the executives. They go to a, they're running the company and they have meetings with their managers of their departments, and they see the solution to the meeting, you know, two minutes into the meeting. If someone else calls the meeting, they can see the solution as soon as they start talking. They can even imagine what everyone's going to say and that it's going to take two hours to get to the end of the meeting, and they already knew the ending while it started. So they could easily work on something else because it's going to play out the way they expect it. I have one maverick 
father who's a lawyer, a visual lawyer, and he can forecast what everyone's going to say in the courtroom. So he writes down in, a, in advance what everyone will say, what the opponent will say, what the judge will say, what he will say, and he has a script. And so he always wins his cases because he's already visualized and figured out the whole thing, how it's going to end up. If something happens that he doesn't expect, then he has to pace around the room and reformat the picture. And I watched him in court one day. The judge said, if you don't stop pacing, I'm going to call you, you know, out of order. And he was pacing around not to stall or anything. He had to remake a picture that went with a new script. He didn't know what else to do. All right. I can bring that back down to the the child level for our listeners in two very good ways. So when you're doing math at school, teachers want you to show your work. But a visual thinker may not know how he got to an answer, right? Right. Exactly right. Because showing your steps is sequential. Right. And lots of people get the answers right, and they have no idea what the steps were. mm Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they will uh, take a while to understand something, but once they understand it, it's permanent, does not need to be repeated. Exactly. Whereas the model in school is repetition, repetition, (laughs) let's practice these facts over and over and over again. Right. That can be very harmful to Mavericks. Because they're learning yeah. it in, you know, inconsistently. One time they're learning it right, another time they're learning it wrong. And then the brain has all that garble in there. And when they take a test, the brain goes to find the right answer. And there's so many answers, one right and maybe 20 wrong, that it's very confusing. Because hmm. they think by associating. And they're, they're looking for the associated fact. They've been learning it over and over again, and so they have many associated facts to that question. Oh, I see. Kind of like they would have a number of pictures for the word green. Right. But not knowing which is the correct one. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. One other thing I wanted to say, this is causes a lot of behavior problems, I know from personal experience. You talked about the lawyer writing this script out and then watching it unfold. Well, many children, you tell them you're going to a birthday party. Well, they're such fast thinkers, they right away start working out in their head what it's going to be like. They run the script, run the movie. But the problem is you get there and it's not as you expected, and that can end up in... Um, a lot of tantrums. Exactly. And it can be very upsetting to everybody. And it can even lead to having people think that your maverick is trying to be bossy because your maverick is trying to get all the people to comply with the picture in their head. You see? <laughs> and I'm laughing. I've had so many of those experiences, I can't tell you. Uh-huh. And doesn't know how else to handle the the world. That's that's the process that they think is the only one they know. So unless you can replace the picture quickly, it could lead to withdrawal or a temper tantrum. 
Marianne, I can't hear you very well. Can you, Dr. Florence? No. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, there we as go. I'm listening, I just, um, I'm just thinking. I'm fascinated, and I'm just thinking. How, do you think that there probably is a fairly large percentage of children that have this or that are just misunderstood, or is this really quite unique? Well, according to Dr. Cantwell, who wrote the Diagnostic Manual for the United States, about 25% of the population has a communication disorder in preschool. And that communication disorder, if not corrected, can very quickly lead. Remember, Dr. Cantwell was a very famous child psychiatrist. can very quickly lead to psychiatric problems. Then it gets very confusing to differentiate everything because what you see on the surface can be misbehavior or anxiety or depression or lack of motivation, or cooperation. And really, what Dr. Cantwell says is you want to break off the most treatable part, and that would be always be language. Language is much easier to, tra- to teach than emotion, emotional self-control. But if you process language better, your emotions will be more regulated. Right. Well, that's amazing. Okay, mm-hmm. thank you. Sure. Um, you know... Um, Dr. Uh, Mary Ann has a, a couple of wonderful interviews on sensory processing disorder. I happened mm-hmm. to listen to one this morning. Mm-hmm. So what it makes me think that for a maverick, obviously it's their visual system that is so strongly developed. Do you see symptoms of sensory processing disorder? Or I guess um, can you just talk about sensory integration overall sure. for a maverick? Absolutely. So we have two primary senses. Our number one sense is our ears. It develops at the seventh month in utero. For most of us, it's our primary sense organ. We use it 24-7, so even when we're asleep, we're listening. So if there's a big crash or the alarm goes off, uh, we wake up. We have our eyes closed, but we never close our ears. It's our primary sense organ. Then when we're born, we add seeing, our our visual sense organ. And for way back in history, we've been able to measure attention, memory, and processing on standardized testing for visual thinking and verbal thinking. And we have three auxiliary senses of touch, taste, and smell. We don't measure them with psychometric testing, and they're called the auxiliary or the supporting senses. So if you have one sensory organ, the visual thinking system, working super capably and one underworking or squelched down or inconsistent, you will not have sensory integration. So if you look at an IQ test, Angie, you said... 160 and 70 IQ on your daughter's IQ test. Mm -hmm. So you should only have 10 points apart from your highest to your lowest score to have sensory integration. So Mm. that was a lot more than, that was 30, 90 90 percentile points, I mean 90 IQ points, and you should only have 10 points to have sensory integration. So we already know that one sense organ is 
very dominant over the other sense organ of our primary organs. And the other thing we know from that, and that can throw off all the organs. It can throw off how your clothes feel. It can throw off hypersensitivity to to smells or tastes. And it can also cause you to feel emotions very deeply, be very sensitive. Now, how is that? How does that... I mean, because your emotion is not a sense, per se. But your emotion is a result of your sensory system managing information. So your sensory system... We only have a few minutes left. We only have about two minutes left. So I just want to make sure that you got this point out, and then, um, you know, if you had any closing points that you wanted to um, share with the listeners. Okay. So your sense organs are what lead to your emotions because... Your sense organs are how you manage the world around you, the incoming and outgoing and stimuli. Hmm. Does that sound logical to you, Angie? Yes, it really does, and and it also explains to me um, how your son was transformed. You said in the beginning his balance was off. Um, Sometimes his pain was, the threshold was really high, Um, Mm -hmm. but but as he progressed, that all integrated itself. Right. And he started tap dancing. <laughs> yes, and playing football. Right. Uh-huh. All right. Well, I guess we will um, bring this to a close. I'm sure we could talk for many more hours on this. But um, I guess I'll ask you if you have any um, closing remarks that you'd like to say to our audience about Mavericks or oh. about – you know, just our parents are just um, on such a journey to discover what it is that's causing their child's behaviors. Any words of wisdom for them? Absolutely. If you would like to have some complimentary ebooks from my website for free, you can go to www.sherryflorence.com. That's C H E R I F L O R A N C E. Dot com and I'll email you some some of our materials or give me a call at 866-865-9820. 866-865-9820. I'm always happy to talk to parents and and provide them free materials as appropriate. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm I'm just so pleased that we were able to talk about Mavericks since I have them in my household. <laughs> and, um, there are many more out there. Thank you so much for coming to our program. Well, you're very welcome, and it was so nice to be with both of you. Well, thank you thank both you. for joining us. The fantastic um, host and incredible guest, Dr. Florence. Thank you for joining us. I hope you'll find the time to come back another time. Thank you. Okay. As we end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent here on The Coffee Clutch. You can find us at www.thecoffeeclutch.com. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>